Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once got thrown out of the Long Beach Aquarium for staging an octopus heist with James Woods, Mr. Ryan Seabold! What's up, Jason? How you doing, buddy? I am doing excellent, man. Uh, James Woods, huh? How is he as a co-conspirator? I feel like he's like goes like one of two ways. Either he's like excellent because, you know, he seems like a criminally bastard. Uh, but he also seems like the type of guy that would totally bail on you as soon as like the cop sirens hit. Yeah, both. Uh, I thought we were <laughs> remaking a live action Finding Dory uh, situation at the aquarium. Next thing you know. Uh, dude's all coked up, running down the street without his shirt on, uh, screaming about <laughs> something shit about Trump. I don't know, man. It was bananas. I'm glad I got out of there, though. <laughs> but I mean, you I know, learned, the- though, you know, if if you meet up with James Woods at a local bar at 10 a.m. to start drinking, you're gonna have a day. You're gonna make a day of it. Just clear your schedule because uh, shit's about to go down. <laughs> like you were just meeting to discuss a role in a film, and then next thing you know, you guys are all coked up and you know playing Heat. You know which one of yeah. you is Val Kilmer? Uh, n- uh, none of us were Val Kilmer, and both of us were Val Kilmer at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome, man! Awesome. Well, hey, we have got a film this week. Why don't you go ahead and uh, give our listeners a breakdown, Ryan? Well, speaking of James Woods, he plays uh, what I can only imagine as himself in Videodrome <laughs> uh, by David Cronenberg uh, from 1983. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes summarizes this as the president of a trashy TV channel, Max Wren, played by James Woods, is desperate for new programming to attract viewers. When he happens upon Videodrome, a TV show dedicated to gratuitous torture and punishment, Max sees a potential hit and broadcasts the show on his channel. However, after his girlfriend, played by Deborah Harry, auditions for the show and never returns, Max investigates the truth behind Videodrome and discovers that the graphic violence may not be as fake as he thought. Jason, what did you think about this movie? (laughs) I thought it was some kind of film, and I would be happy to tell you right after we listen to this trailer for Videodrome. Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Max Wren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He has been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of... Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. 
Videodrome is seducing Max Wren. Please, come to me now. Come to Nikki. And Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. Television can change your mind. Videodrome will change your body. Long live the new flesh. It will shatter your reality. Videodrome. Videodrome. Starring Deborah Harry and James Woods. A shocking new vision from the creator of Scanners. Coming soon to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. All right, Ryan. So I'm going to be completely honest. I really liked this film. And this is a movie that I understand not everybody is going to like. Uh, as we've said, you know, there are films, we watch all sorts of films on this program, and there are certain films that we might recommend to, like, our mom or our aunt. This is not that film whatsoever. Nope. <laughs> but Jason, can I stop you right there and ask, you can. out of all the films that we've discussed, which one would you recommend to any of those people? <laughs> I feel like every single review we give is like, I liked it, but I wouldn't tell anyone to watch it ever. Okay, <laughs> dude, I can... Cat, Sweet Max, I mean, going down with the lighthouse. Maybe Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That one might be the only one. <laughs> no, no, dude, no. I would totally recommend Seeking a Friend for the End of the World okay. to them. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I would give them that one. Uh, I Swiss would give Army them, Man. I would give them Paths of Glory. Uh, okay. I would give them High and Low. Um, there's, there, there's okay. definitely some films that we there's a watched. couple, there's a couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, no, that's the beauty of this program, man. Like we have all of those very esteemed films that you can watch with your grandmother. And then we have Dagon, the lighthouse and Videodrome and, and Zardoz and yeah. yeah. And, and those, and those, and those are films <laughs> you watch with like your hippie burnout friends. And then we have the films for like the true derelicts, which is like, you know, the, the, the X-rated films we watch sweet, sweet back and Fritz. So, yeah, dude, we Man. ended up... Uh, I'm just glad I kicked so many of, of those boxes for you. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, man, Ryan's my derelict burnout friend. Uh, Ryan, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're all... But that's the thing, dude. Both, both of us are all those guys, right? That's all why the all above. these films work. That's why all we the enjoy above. all yep. these. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, dude, uh, I, actually, I, I actually really, really enjoyed it. Uh, high level without getting into it too deep yet what'd you think yeah no i uh same this was really influential for me i've seen this one a couple times before i'm a pretty big fan of cronenberg for what he is i yeah again wouldn't recommend many of his films uh to many people just because it is kind of weird and awkward and controversial and unsettling but uh i'm okay with that sometimes and it was cool after going through Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Friends and Neighbors and some of the films we just go watch to go to, you know, another ape shit bananas sci-fi body horror, you know, kind of film like this. Uh, it was kind of a a weird palate cleanser, question mark? I don't know. Um, I will say this one was made in 1983 for a budget of $6 million. It grossed $2.1 in the box office, so it wasn't a huge success, although uh, it did get cult uh, classic fame. Uh, later down the road this is also oddly enough uh part of the criterion collection which i did yeah. not see coming no dude they throw they throw some unique ones in there and the funny thing yeah. too is like 
especially when you go back, I think there was a point where they were trying to maybe be a bit more accessible or something like that. Probably, and, and even just talking about it out loud, it's probably closer to when you and I were like in, you know, film school days where DVDs were still a thing, right? Because nowadays, uh, Criterion is just for hardcore film collectors. Cause again, most people really don't buy physical mediums anymore. Right. But at the time, you know, so if you go back, like for example, there's a long out of print and it's worth so much money. It's the, uh, Armageddon, the Criterion collection. Really? Yeah, so Criterion totally legit did a uh, did Michael Bay movies. Um, wow. I think they may have even done The Rock if I if I remember correctly. Uh, that that wow. that don't quote me on that, but they for sure have an Armageddon one. And it's funny because I guess uh, a large uh, one one of the the reason that it even came to my attention early on is a I was something of like a collector back in the day, you know. Um, so okay, it was one of those out of print. DVDs that you really couldn't get anywhere. You couldn't go rent it. You couldn't buy it for less than like, you know, whatever, hundred bucks, whatever. So, um, but apparently there's like some deleted scenes of Ed Harris just completely losing his shit on the cast and crew, <laughs> <laughs> which if you know Ed Harris, you're like, yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I still to this, I'm sure they've, they've like scrubbed it everywhere. Uh, but yeah, dude, like I, I remember like, I want to see Ed Harris lose his shit on cast and crew. Uh, you know, nowadays we get Tom Cruise, we take it for granted. Back in the day, that wasn't just a thing you got all the time. That was special, yeah. Yeah, you get the laser disc to go watch. <laughs> before uh, self, before the shit. smartphones, right? Before, <laughs> you had to get, like, the sound guy who, like, all covertly, like, clicked on the recording button during one of the star's rants and then leaked it to the paparazzo for 50 bucks hey, or whatever. Man. As a sound guy, I could tell you that the audio guy hears everything. The things <laughs> I, I have heard, <laughs> the stories I could tell. But I won't. Awesome. Um, well, let's tell a story about Videodrome, shall we? Yeah, let's do and, it. And 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 Ryan, do you can you think of a place a good place for us to start? At the beginning. At the beginning. When the film starts, we open up on a brief credit sequence. It's '80s as hell, as is the following station promo for his network, which is Civic Television, Channel 83. And Ryan, I actually really did love the little uh, graphic that they have. The Their slogan is Channel 83, the one you take to bed with you. And then there's this like <laughs> cartoon of this like guy who's holding a TV in bed and stuff. So, you know, obviously there's going to, setting it up that there's going to be some social commentary aspects, uh, along with just a lot of this batshit crazy weirdness. So now... One of the things I will ask you, Ryan, uh, there were two names, aside from obviously Cronenberg, who wrote and directed this film, that stuck out. And uh, the first one is uh, Ooh, the... me too, buddy. I hope you're yeah. uh, going to say the same thing. What, what, okay, what are the names, dude? You give me yours. No, no, no. Okay, you, you give one, I'll give one. Okay, dude. So the first one is uh, is The Score by a Mr. Howard Shore. Yes, that's <laughs> yes. definitely one. <laughs> so- Absolutely. I I uh, I did some uh, deep diving into this. Do you know that uh, he started his career with Cronenberg? They're both Canucks. They're Canadians yeah. from Toronto, and uh, they both got their start there together. Uh, and and uh, then you know they started parting uh, and going their separate ways. But Howard, Sh- well, but uh, he's Shore, also his boy, dude. So because uh, that's what I'm yeah, saying. They did all. It, they done, did everything together. Yeah, Howard Shore has, I believe, scored every single Cronenberg movie, uh, at least yeah. since this one, if not from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and for those who don't know, Howard Shore is the musical mastermind that gave us such things as the Lord of the Rings score. So yep. he's and, pretty I mean, iconic. He works with Scorsese. He did AV. He did the Aviator. He did Hugo. He did. He's done the Cell for Tarzan Singh. Like he's a legit 
legit talent. And the funny thing is, spoiler alert, I actually did not like the score of this film at all. I thought it was well, really I mean, it was cheesy. 80 synth, to, you know, crazy 80 synth horror music, you know. It, it was fitting, I think, but yeah, it, it wasn't was, best but- work. I think that what I th- I have to imagine that Cronenberg's direction was I want the old 40s and 50s organ that played along to the black and white horror films, but in synth version. Right. That's, <laughs> That's because really, it's just got that Vincent Price sort of feel. Right. <laughs> Well, and so that's that brings me to uh, not to get too off topic, but but this is a noir film. This is a horror noir. As much as it gets passed off as a body horror and sci-fi film, it's all those things too. But I think first and foremost, uh, we're going on a, a bit of a whodunit in the way of like you know a classic Bo- Bogart film. Yeah, um, so that's fair. I, I kind of felt like the score kind of matched that a little bit and gave us some a little bit of noir horror noir vibes. Um, yeah. So, and the other name. Why don't you feed me the uh, your secondary name? <laughs> All right, man. You're probably seeing it coming. It's uh, three syllables. Rick Baker. Yeah, that's the other one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, honestly, I didn't know either of those before I watched this. This. Yeah, time. me neither. So that's the first time I noticed that. Yeah, they uh, just Rick Baker up. Uh, was coming right off of uh, American Werewolf in London, I guess, when he was going to shoot this, and mm-hmm. uh, and he gave us that awesome TV scene. Um, that uh, James Woods shoves his head in. So yeah, and we'll the uh, and then, then the breathing cassettes, and the breathing cassette, and the the belly button uh, uh, vagina hole, and the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> Rick Baker's yeah. a stud. Yeah, he is. And then a uh, cu- couple notable movies uh, for those listening. Uh, he did the creature design for Harry and the Hendersons. He completely redid Eddie Murphy for The Nutty Professor, and he also did all of the aliens in Men in Black. So, needless to say, this dude is a legit, legit talent. He's been around. Yeah. One last thing while we're talking about who's who and what's what. um, Another thing I learned on the deep dive, uh, you know that uh, Cronenberg and Ivan Reitman were homies? And Ivan Reitman produced all Cronenberg's early films? They got their start in Canada together. And uh, they had a production company together and they were working together doing all uh, his early films. And then when Reitman got picked up to do uh, Animal House and kind of went off on the comedy side of things, um, Cronenberg kind of stayed the course and kept going down his sci-fi horror thing that he was doing at the time. And, uh, of course, at the time that um, Videodrome was being shot to come out, uh, Ivan Reitman was doing Ghostbusters. So kind of cool. little parallel in movie history. That's way nuts, dude. I love that. So, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into the film proper here. So we're introduced to our protagonist named Max, who's played by James Woods. He lives like a slob. You know, we're introduced to him. He's eating old pizza, and he's looking at some stills of naked Japanese women on some sort of film set. We will soon learn that this is for a softcore pornographic show named Samurai Dreams that's being pitched to his network uh, Ryan, the one thing I did uh, notice, I actually, I, I'm, I'm not even going to lie, dude. I totally picked up that Criterion DVD and I haven't had a chance to jump into it. But one of the things that I've noticed on there is that they, so David Cronenberg actually shot this movie the, the, or this little TV program, this pornographic TV program called Samurai Dreams. Oh, wow. Like it was a separate like side mini production that they did. for. Okay. This. So like on the Criterion is like. The show Samurai Dreams. Like I can pull that up and watch it. <laughs> Not that I want that's to. Awesome. Like, uh, but I mean, that's yeah. So uh, I thought it was 
super funny. And I, I have no idea if that's just like his excuse to like film a porno without being criticized for filming a porno. Right. He's like, nah, it's for the movie. See? And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> that's uh that's kind of a uh, reminiscent of like the, the grindhouse trailers from uh, Tarantino and, and Rodriguez when they, yeah. uh, had, like Eli Roth do Thanksgiving and like all these little fake deals, but it was a real production. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep, totally. So, uh, you know, so he brings that show back to his fellow suits at Channel 83. They're watching it. You know, they don't really like it because it's not trashy enough. And Max specifically says it's, it's too soft. He's like, it's just so, it's just so soft, right? Um, so he's looking for something edgier. He actually has a relationship with this, I guess we'll call him like a frequency pirate. He refers to him as a pirate fairly frequently, yeah. as a frequency. <laughs> And so he basically like is able to tap into this signal that's coming from what they, he initially believes is Malaysia or at least tells him it's Malaysia. And he shows him this feed. This feed is of basically it's just a, a running camera on a bunch of sort of snuff behavior, right? It's really yes. hardcore S and M style sex and violence and, you know, people in black sort of suits and hooded suits with chains and, you know, they're, they're they're being really aggressive with these women who are tied up and it's in this like giant red clay sort of room. And, and it's very sort of, like I said, dungeony. And uh, Max finds himself intrigued. And obviously this is going to sort of set up some of the, you know, social commentary aspects of it, which I like. See, this is one of the things that I like about these films, Ryan, is a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of visual metaphor in this film. And I think that films like this, it's kind of the opposite of some of the lighter fare that we look at, like a Seeking a Friend or the Booksmart, right? Where we talk about like, yeah, you know what? Like, I don't think this is really a movie that's meant to be sat there and dissected with a notebook. It's more just something you kind of want to just sit back and enjoy for what it is. I believe that this film is the opposite. I believe these are the films that really benefit from sitting down with a notebook and really paying attention to, because there's a ton of little clues, right? Even through a lot of the like hallucination scenes or the way that, you know, where he, he trips out and thinks he's slapping his secretary. And then there's that one little insert where the secretary changes to Debbie Harry's Nikki character. Um, and those are the type of things where you can really sort of sit there and, and analyze them and say, Oh, okay, this is Cronenberg using this to indicate some aspect of the story, right? Um, and so I, I, I just wanted to point out that, again, you know, these sort of uh, films that do rely on visual metaphor, these are the films that are a lot of fun for me anyways to break down and look at. Do you feel kind of the same way? Yeah, I was uh, expecting you to approach this episode of the podcast when you called uh, called out we were watching Videodrome. I thought it was going to be a lot of humor, a lot of you and I kind of riffing and dissing on the film. I found myself uh, quite the opposite, more engaged in taking notes and looking things up, doing research uh, and, and dissecting the film exactly as you're saying. And uh, not as much of me making fun of it. I thought, you know, this is going to be silly. James Woods, it's not going to hold up over time. No, no, no. Uh, it held up very well. In fact, it's probably way more pertinent now. Uh, than it was then, um, you know, because all of these same principles apply to the Internet and how we're all addicted to that and how easily uh, sex is available through that. Um, in fact, at one point uh, I even wrote down, this is just the story of Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's accurate. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, just in saying that on the podcast, I uh, I may have to bleep that out so I don't end up in court for the next six months. But, you know, it'll be fun. <laughs> Worthy cause. Worth it. 
Come after us, Zuckerberg. Zucky. Yeah, Marky Zucks. <laughs> and one of the things I also love about this film, Ryan, is the way that Cronenberg uses sound specifically. You know, uh, it's kind of one of these things where as, for as much as the score does kind of make itself known at certain points, at other times it kind of takes a back seat to a lot of the sound design. And I think that he, he being Cronenberg, is really effective at using these sort of abrasive sounds to sort of set an edgier atmosphere right so like when uh immediately after this when 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 max goes to visit that frequency pirate again we'll call him his name is harold by the way so we'll refer to him as harold moving forward when he goes to visit harold at first we see the satellite and it's outside and it's readjusting itself and it's got this really abrasive grinding sound right it's like and you know so and then we've got these sort of dark visuals and then when he goes inside before he actually goes into the room he's in the hallway and there's like this guy pounding down a door telling the girl to let him the fuck in and she's screaming and a baby's crying and so all of this sort of adds up to just make you feel uh, a little uneasy right and so and you'll see that multiple times throughout the film leaning on that sound design to set atmosphere I I loved the way that he did that so as the film progresses Max actually goes on a talk show it's here that we are introduced to Nikki which is the character played by Miss Deborah Harry of Blondie fame and I have to say Ryan uh, Blondie was a little bit before my time Deborah Harry gorgeous woman for anybody that's familiar I'm not telling you anything you don't know but I was like wow Deborah Harry was was a very very Attractive woman, and uh, I yeah, wish I and she that. did great in this film too. Um, yeah, and she's you know, a great not, actress to boot, of course. Yeah, not and, being an uh, actress uh, as a career, she slayed it. It was really good stuff. Yeah, definitely. So it's like it's one of those people where it's like, okay, wait a minute. So, so you're gorgeous. You're a great actress. You're a great singer. This is this is not fair. Who are you to take all of these talents? Why not? Why not just distribute them among the rest of us, right? Like, and it's give funny me too an awesome because. Voice. All these people this have to listen was, to my um, nasally ass voice drone on every day. Like, couldn't give me some deep <laughs> bassy, like some vibrato, like, hey guys, hey ladies, what's up? <laughs> this was, uh, I was trying to think uh, as I was watching this film if I could think of any other uh, examples of singers that crossed over into acting. Um, the 80s gave us Deborah Harry, of course, uh, in this role. We also had um, the great David Bowie in Labyrinth, uh, and, you know, on and on it goes. Uh, but uh, prior to the 80s and, and or maybe the late 70s, I was just trying to think that wasn't really something that that crossed over unless it was a musical like Bing Crosby or something like that. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe yeah. Frank Sinatra and Ocean's Eleven. That would be uh, definitely one. Uh, with dude, the I'm pack. dude. I'm spacing right now. Uh, the girl who wrote Time After Time. What's her name? Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper in the 80s. She was in a bunch of movies. She was in that movie Vibes, which I think was with Jeff Goldblum or someone like that. Okay. She, she actually did a few movies. I, I always found her very charming. I, I like her. So, yeah. So, anyway. So, we're on this talk show and we're introduced to Nikki, played by Deborah, Deborah Harry, the lovely Deborah Harry. And she talks about sort of being in an overstimulated society. Max kind of assumes that she's going to be coming after him. And then when he kind of points out her red dress and says that she's, you know, being a bit of a hypocrite or something, she kind of softens up, backpedals and says, oh, well, yeah, you know, I'm exactly the type of person that I'm talking about. I'm overstimulated and always looking for, you know, the next great thrill. And then, of course, his ears perk up and he's like right in the middle of being recorded, like, hey, you want to go out to dinner tonight? And they have kind of a little thing. And it's uh, I actually have a clip of that, Ryan. Let's go ahead and listen here real quick. Max Wren, 
Your television station offers its viewers everything from softcore pornography to hardcore violence. Why? Well, it's a matter of economics, Rena. We're uh, small. In order to survive, we have to give people something they can't get anywhere else. And, uh, and we do that. But don't you feel such shows contribute to a social climate of violence and sexual malaise? And do you care? Certainly I care. <laughs> I care enough, in fact, to give my viewers uh, a, a harmless outlet for their, their fantasies and their frustrations. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a socially positive act. What about it, Nikki? Is it socially positive? Well, I think we live in overstimulated times. We crave stimulation for its own sake. We gorge ourselves on it. We always want more, whether it's tactile, emotional, or sexual. And I think that's bad. Then why did you wear that dress? Sorry? That dress. It's very stimulating. And it's red. You know what Freud would have said about that dress. And he would have been right. I admit it. I live in a highly excited state of overstimulation. Listen, I'd really like to take you out to dinner tonight. And so when we come back, we also are introduced to Brian Oblivion through that character, which is obviously a very funny name, but uh, he's going to play an a... 80s name, man. It sounds like a, <laughs> the, the villain from an 80s Nintendo video game. Bah, like... Brian Oblivion. Bah. Yeah, right. I feel like I'm, I, I had to, as the head boss of Double Dragon or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man. And uh, but, you know, I mean, it, at the same time, they don't try to pass it off like that's his real name. Like he's he, he no, says they, at one point, they, like, do. Oh, yeah, that's they, my they hyphenate name. it as if it's Irish, as if it's from I, Irish descent. <laughs> it's Brian, Brian Oblivion. Eh, that's a terrible <laughs> Irish accent. OK, hold on, Ryan. Stop from you the Oblivion have to family. Give me an Irish accent. I'm not letting you move forward until you give me the name Brian Oblivion in an Irish accent. Oh, no. Yeah, no, I don't do think it. I got that Absolutely. one in me. Nope. Nope. I demand it. Let's go. Can't move forward until you give it to us. You gonna make our audience wait this whole time? Oh, oh! Get in, get in me TV. Uh, get in me TV and move with me video games. <laughs> get in me fucking TV, lad. <laughs> that was brilliant. Oh my god, dude! Oh, you're totally using that voice in one of our sketches. One hundred percent. I am, I am writing you a role for that. That was brilliant. And thank you, thank you, sir. Thank you for playing. Appreciate along. it. You you just yeah. gave our audience that gold, and you'll and and they'll always have that. They'll always have that. <laughs> That's my Brian Oblivion, uh, Brian, Brian Oblivion voice. There you go. So yeah. So uh, and 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 he's going to play a central figure moving forward. This Brian Oblivion character, with regards to sort of unraveling and allowing us a vessel to learn the extent of Videodrome and exactly what's going on, which. Still requires a certain amount of, hey, just play along with this, right? Like, don't poke that dead frog too much, you know, when it comes to, you know, the, the sort of being like the tumor and, and being like, like Videodrome's a signal, but it's also like a living entity. And there's a lot of like trippy shit that it's going to ask you to go along with. Just do it and it'll pay off. Okay. But there's also, <laughs> right. but there's also a lot of commentary behind it. So even, and I think that's why I'm so forgiving is, is, is some of the lo uh, logistical inconsistencies, which is that it, it uses, it uses these devices and these symbols and these metaphors and all of these different creative devices to, to, to give us its philosophy, right? Like at one point, uh, the, there's, there's a character, I believe her name is Marsha. We're going to talk about in a minute. And she talks about how, 
a uh, video drama is dangerous because it has a philosophy, right? And that's the thing is is when when it, this it's sort of like the anti your friends and neighbors we looked at last week, right? Where you're like, I'm not really too sure where. Mr. LeBute falls on this scale. You know, is he, are we supposed to find, you know, this character funny? Is he being satirical? Does he hate this guy? Da, 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 you know, uh, I, you do get the sense that in spite of everything that's going on, you know, Cronenberg is making statements about this and he's not just using it as some sort of opportunity to give us a bunch of gratuitous sex and violence for the, for the sake of it. I think that, you know, his, he uses that in a very pointed way and even though it's a bit trashy, I would argue that it's not exploitative. No, like, do you agree? no, this was very much like uh, your friends and neighbors in the sense that it's disturbing without being exploitative. Yeah, there's not very much nudity in this film at all. Uh, yeah. There's a quick brief scene with Deborah Harry um, and a couple of things in the torture porn stuff, but it's all kind of fuzzy and, you know, really low res. So it's not like up in your face uh, about it. Um, yeah. Very, very uh, disturbing without, you know, rubbing it your nose in it. Uh, I also will add that uh, this would be a much shorter film if uh, James Wood's character would have just hired Neil LeBute to do his programming for him and game over. Like, that would have been it. <laughs> Neil LeBute could have programmed this whole channel uh, with content. And, uh... <laughs> He's like, oh, no, bro, I've got you on all 24 hours, man. I've got this shit yeah. logged in my head, bro. I know exactly what your audience wants because right. I am that audience. No, they would have been the Bill Belichick and Tom Brady of Videodrome. Like, that would have been it. But, uh, <laughs> James Woods would have uh, James Woods and Neil LeBute. Oh, my God. Him. With financial backing from John Voight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be an empire. Oh, yeah. man. There's a, there's a with me as always uh, joke in there you know, that maybe you could pull for one of these episodes. But I'll let you have that one. Absolutely. And yeah, so we do get that scene, you know, the sort of like we're talking about the sort of disturbing sex scene. And and again, you know, they don't, you know, zoom in on, you know, the breasts and, and the butt and all that sort of stuff. You know, they're they're sort of artfully, tastefully hidden in so much as you can be in what some would describe as a trash film like this. Uh, again, you know, we're obviously don't look at it quite in that lens, but he does go to visit her. I thought this was hilarious, too, that. The, so Nikki, the Deb Deborah Harry character, she's a sort of radio therapist of sorts. And we see her. She works for C-R-A-M radio, Cram radio, which I thought was just <laughs> freaking hysterical. Um, and, uh, you know, she goes home with Max and she very obviously she's this over sexualized character. You know, she obviously gets into some stuff. We see that she's into some like mild cutting kind of stuff uh, with regards to her sexual appetites and whatnot. And so. She is going through his cassette collection. Guys, I don't, know, I don't know how many of our listeners are going to remember cassette collections, but yes, all this takes place on VHS medium. So she's going Actually, through. Actually, uh, I'll take it a step further, my friend. All this takes place on Betamax. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, they're a uh, little smaller uh, tapes. You could see it in the hand. Um, Very yeah, funny. I guess. Interesting. So here's the deal. You know, Betamax uh, at this time in place was going head to head with VHS over yeah. who is going to be the proper medium. And, uh, you know, we all, we just take for granted that, that we have what we have and we get what we get. But a lot of these battles were fought hard between major corporations as far as, um, you know, who was going to own the rights to do this shit. Uh, even DVDs had a similar battle, but yeah, VHS yeah. and Betamax was notable. Um, and they couldn't get a VHS to fit inside James Wood's belly vagina later. So uh, it was huh. too big and they couldn't build the prosthetic 
uh, to fit it. So they switched it to Betamax, and then history was made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and then when she does, you know, after she watches Videodrome, she's, you know, kind of in the mood, a little turned on, and, you know, they have uh, the sex scene, but it's really more about the fact that he's, like, piercing her ears, uh, which, you know, because, again, she's sort of one of these, you know, likes pain sort of, sort of, sort of people, and... I think I'm pretty sure this is really essentially where the first hallucination is because, you know, they're kind of having their scene on the floor in the living room, like on a, on a blanket or whatever in front of fireplace, something like that. And, you know, the camera kind of zooms into them. And then when it comes back out, we see them in the Videodrome room, right, with all of the, you know, red clay and the, and the red walls and the, the chains and all that sort of stuff. So and I believe that that is our first hallucination that our protagonist Max has. Video hallucinations is going to be a recurring theme that comes up in over the course of this movie, which also is what's making us question what's real and what's not, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, early on in the film, or later on in the film, uh, I should say, uh, I think we get a bit of a monologue that kind of explains a lot of this, where Brian Oblivion talks about... Whenever you watch Videodrome, uh, a tumor starts to grow almost immediately within you, and it's alive. It's Videodrome is is taking over your body. So when, you know, kind of unwinding the film and going back to this moment, uh, to me, when uh, James Woods was having the uh, frequency guy, Harlan, um, decode that frequency and show him the show airing what they found out to be in Pittsburgh— uh, fucking Pittsburgh, man. Um, <laughs> nothing good happens in Pittsburgh. Nothing good happens in Pittsburgh. Uh, but yeah, so after he saw that show, he started to get like addicted to it. He kept going back to Harlan. Hey, do you have any more of that show? Do you have any more of that show? And I think this is when it started to consume him in this Deborah Harry sex scene. And, and when we start to get our first hallucinations and such. And he's now at this point, like to your point, he's got a Betamax supercut. Uh, that Harlan has made him of different clips and scenes of Videodrome, uh, the torture porn um, that he's unscrambled. Uh, by the way, yeah, I don't know if you or any of our listeners remember the good old days of scrambled television, but uh, <laughs> the, the cable company used to give you what they gave you, and then the rest of the, the stations were all scrambled, and you could get these scramblers that would uh, try to put the picture back together and and um, encode the the frequency. Um, I guess James Woods is working for one of those higher stations that was localized um, or kind of underground, kind of like pirate radio was back in the day. Um, so this was very adult, the station he was running. This wasn't like he was running CBS affiliate or something like that. Or, you know, Fox wasn't even around back then, I don't think. So, uh, yeah, this was uh, the good old rough and tumble days of television. <laughs> um MTV uh, was brand new back in 1980. Oh, uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, with Video Killed the Radio Star and all that, I think that launched in 1980. So, yeah, uh, yeah this was all brand new. This was the uh, the wild, wild west of television. And um, so the, people were just putting shit out there on the on the uh, television waves uh, frequency and uh, scrambling it if you weren't allowed to have it. So there was a lot of pornographic stuff and things like that uh, that was all hidden in those upper channels where it's like, is that a knee or a boob? I don't care. I'm 12. I'm going after it. <laughs> You're like, this. no, it's totally boob. And then it turns out to be the surgery channel. You're like, no. 
whatever. Was it a surgery <laughs> boob? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and for and for any of our younger younger listeners that are listening, like that that you make guys guys might not know, but like cable used to be like an on off thing, right? So there was like a cable running through that just had all the channels. And you either got all the channels or you didn't. It wasn't like where someone had software to be able to grant you access to any number of a bunch of different channels. Uh, you just either had the channels or you didn't. So I remember like, uh, you know, like there was this thing where you used to bribe your cable guy. Like the guy would come in and, you know, you'd sign up for just like the regular service or whatever. And you could literally give him like 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it was. And he would just tap you in to the cable. Cause it was just, it was just an on off thing. It was like a, like a sewer pump or like a water pump. And all you need to do is just plug it in and connect it and you either get it or you don't. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was true up until, uh, some of the paid channels started coming out like HBO, uh, where then you needed a box to descramble certain frequencies and, and certain boxes were wired or geared, you know, with a red wire here and a blue wire, there, all soldered inside the box. And it was very box specific. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, the the sexy thing was to order descramblers. Then you got everything. And everybody knew one kid in school that whose parents had a descrambler to get all the sports, but it also got the adult stuff. Um, and that's that was where us, I think, man. Uh, I had that box, that, dude. It, oh, I got you did? All HBO, MTV, and yeah, some wow. of the other stuff. It was amazing. Okay, some of the other stuff. I see where you're going <laughs> with this video drum. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, when we come back... Max is at lunch. He's at lunch with this Marsha girl and she's, well, no, at first he's, she's in his studio and she's trying to sell him this Roman orgy show, right? Uh, because he just basically deals in trash TV. Max refuses, but he's super into Videodrome and he's looking for anybody to help him get information on it. And yeah, and Ryan, this kind of sets up what you said before about this being a sort of like neo-noir thriller, right? It's like hiring the private investigator, you know, shades of that throughout this movie in terms of trying to understand and learn what Videodrome is and get to the bottom of this. So, and, but, uh, you know, she obviously, yeah. Cause I feel like in, in old classic noir films, uh, it was often the, the, your protagonist was often the anti-hero, you know, he was a fucked up dude and the anti-hero in a Cronenberg film is good. If you, if you're going to ask him to show you his version of an anti-hero, uh, you know, you're going to get this Max Wren character, uh, played by James Woods. And it's, pretty fucked up that's kind of Cronenberg's MO you know as you go through his films whether it be Scanners or The Fly with Brundle and and all of that you know um you know he kind of he's given you these great unique anti-heroes as you go through these flawed characters that you're still rooting for somehow uh to teach you lessons or or give you a morality tale uh in the worst possible way <laughs> so um <laughs> and for that reason alone you know you just really have to respect his library there are a lot of films uh by Cronenberg I have not seen I've not seen The Dead Zone um, I've not seen the brood, which I think is his, one of his first films. Um, yeah, it is. so uh, it's I really go good. Back we and... actually have the brood on our list. Oh, cool. Yeah. I've seen it I, I'd like to really uh, go back and watch some of these. Um, and I, I, I haven't even seen the fly in many years, so I'd love to go back and watch that as well. Oh dude, it still holds up so well. That's one oh, that I, I make it. sure to watch every like two to three years at least, man. And it's always, and that was Rick amazing. Baker too, right? Didn't Rick Baker yeah. do Brundlefly? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And yeah, just cool. every, every everything about it. I think, uh, yeah, and even even his later ones where he got away from the horror. Like, I Eastern Promises is just a wonderful, wonderful movie. That's another Love one we it. have on our list. Uh, just and in the history of violence movie. Yeah, and both. history of yeah, and history of violence. I liked a little less than Eastern Promises, but still really, really good. I think the thing with Eastern Promises is it's like it hinges on a twist that literally we all know going into it, like from minute yeah. one. If this guy isn't what people say he is, then there's no movie. <laughs> it's just a, it's right. just an early Linklater film, right? And he's not that type of filmmaker. <laughs> so I think that was really the, just the main problem that I had is it's like it, they really should have had him change, you know, for maybe early second act. Because, uh, again, you know, it's like, oh, here's the big reveal. And it's like, well, yeah, bro, we kind of figured that out a long time ago. But still a very well-made movie. Anywho, getting back to the movie. So... Later is when he meets Marsha for lunch. She's done a little digging on video Germany and she comes back and she basically tells him like, Max, got to drop this man. Right. And then, and this is very indicative of a lot of these, right? Like, you know, when it's sort of like the guy that's uncovering the conspiracy, right? Like you're getting into something that you can't understand, kid. You got to get out now while you still can. <laughs> you know, one of those that, type right. of things, right? There's always that character. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, she's, she's playing that character. Like, you don't want to go down that road. Right. And, uh, so, <laughs> but regard- danger down there. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, Max being Max, he's not going to take a no for an answer. And he actually ends up turning it on her by sort of taking advantage of her situation and saying, look, you know, you, you're, you're telling me you don't want to give me a name and this shit's dangerous. I'm telling you that I'm going to buy your film if you give me this name. Right. I'll throw it in the package when I'm selling it to, you know, the networks or, or whatever it is. So. She is basically like, yeah, humanity sucks. You suck. You know, I need this. Here's the name. The name she gives is Brian Oblivion, right? So he's going to be the sort of uh, vessel that's going to un- unravel what this video drum thing's really about. And so he goes. Now, it turns out that Brian actually has this mission. And, uh, and not like he has a like he's a man on a mission, but like literally like a homeless mission, right? Like a, a rescue center. And he believes that he can cure a lot of the the homeless population, uh, you know, a lot of the mental problems and psychological problems within that community through television, right? And 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 he makes an interesting argument. I, I did I did really like this statement by Cronenberg through the Ob- Oblivion character, which is that, well, first of all, let's acknowledge, technically speaking, very cool scene where he's making his way through the mission and. Cronenberg gives us that kind of overhead shot that kind of goes over some various sort of like cubicle walls. And again, just really effective use of that sound design where we, we hear a lot of the chatter and we hear some of the, the more derelict people and, 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 you know, some of the uh, sort of off putting sounds that's being, that are being made in this environment. And so technically speaking, really cool. And also a really interesting concept where he doesn't end up meeting Brian, but he does meet his daughter, Bianca, which is still B.O.B., by the way, which is kind of funny. And uh, (laughs) she mentions that she's basically her dad's screen and she's the one who kind of gives us information. What they're arguing, and this is kind of something that's been kind of acknowledged in, in different psychological studies, which is that like when people consume media, when humans consume media, whether it's a movie, whether it's something on um, YouTube, video clip, whatever, but like when the the human brain has a very hard time distinguishing fact from fiction, right? And this is the same 
concept behind why when you watch a thriller movie and somebody is held captive or grabbed or a jump scare that you have a visceral reaction it's because there's a very large part of your brain that tells itself that all of this is happening to you you know so that's why we cringe at torture porn when we someone when we like ryan you and i both talk about how like uh, teeth and nails specifically, right? Like those scenes really get to us when they've got some long needle nose pliers and they're janking uh, fingernails out of, out, of, out of people's hands, right? And, and because our yeah. brain tells us that's happening to us. And in turn, we cringe and we have a visceral physical reaction to that. Now, so their concept is basically with that being understood, why can we not expose certain types of people to images and to television as a form of either rehabilitation or conditioning, knowing that the human brain is going to interpret these events as really happening, and thus either the trauma or the benefit will result from that. What, what's yeah, your opinion on that, people. Ryan? I thought, I thought it was an interesting concept. I'd love to know what you think about that. No, I mean, I I definitely agree. I think that, uh, you know, my, my mom always told me as a kid, garbage in, garbage out, you know, and... Uh, so what what you feed yourself is what you're going to get. And, um, you know, if you eat a bunch of candy and carbs and, and co you know, complex sugars and all of that, uh, refined sugars, then, uh, yeah, you're going to get fat. And if you watch a bunch of this stuff, then you're going to adapt to that or at least desensitize yourself to it. Um, you know, we're that brings me to an interesting point, Jason. I'm glad you cued me in here because uh, something that I noticed as I was watching this film and I kind of did a bit of a deep dive on the interwebs. Uh, this is a running theme through all of Cronenberg's films where his movies often get passed off as horror or science fiction. Uh, but he's been quoted as saying that uh, he prefers see seeing his films as films about transcendence and evolution. Um, it's the human brain and the human body following the brain to evolve based on its environment. And so his interest is simply that, well, if I put the human in this environment or if I put a human in that environment, uh, what would it do? And let the scene play out for better or worse. And so, uh, you know, with the digital age uh, at his footstep at that time and everything changing so rapidly in media, how we consume it, technology, the availability of things like that, uh, he became very interested in how this was going to affect society and relationships um, and all of that. And so he let that play out on screen by way of, you know, these movies like Scanners, Videodrome, The Fly, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, this is all about humans evolving based on their circumstance. And I would argue even movies like Eastern Promises uh, or In the History of Violence are kind of like that, too, and how people adapt to their surroundings and outgrow certain things. But it's always underlying because of how they fed that monster earlier in their lives and so forth. Uh, can we leave our past? Can we not? Um, and what changes us as humans? So, uh, yeah, that's maybe another discussion for another day. You know, we could go on for hours about the merits of that or, or how this all kind of plays out in the digital age with Internet and our cell phones and smartphones. But that was one of my biggest takeaways from the film is uh, as old as this movie is, it, it, I think it's even more applicable now than ever. 100%. Now, as the film progresses, we start to see a lot more of the what they call video hallucinations start to affect Max. So 
We see this in a scene where the secretary arrives. He has this secretary, where, or especially in the first scene, we didn't mention it, but it's sort of like a, uh, hey, this is your wake-up call, and she sends him a videotape every morning, I guess, to kind of give him a rundown of his meeting. It's like a virtual secretary at the time, right? But through, you know, Betamax tapes instead of VHS. And so she arrives to his house later, and this is where he starts to really hallucinate because she's kind of like, hey, you know, you look really bad, blah, 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 what's been going on? And then she sees the video drum tape and she's like, hey, what's this? And he freaks out and he's like, ah, don't touch that. And he runs over and slaps her like two times, three times, really, really hard in a way that actually doesn't really happen, right? Because, and then, then there's that brief moment where we see the Deborah Harry Nikki character. And so he... Again, showing that like he's becoming really addicted to this videodrome tape and starting to have these hallucinations. She's like, hey, you know, you didn't hit me, blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, oh, right. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what happened. Must be tired. And so, but she then ends up delivering him a tape that she tells him is from one Brian Oblivion. And so from there, he's going to basically use these tapes uh, that which we'll get into why they exist in a minute, but he's going to use these tapes that Brian Oblivion made to learn and understand more about Videodrome. So when after he's delivered the tape, uh, that's also when we get like our first real, real bouts of visual insanity, right? This is when we get our first instance of the tape sort of expanding and breathing. And then yeah. we also get the television, which... I believe is 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 probably one of the more famous stills or images from the movie. Like that's the one they put on the on the cover of the uh, video of the Criterion Collection. Uh, is, no, is this that is where TV Rick section? Baker really got to uh, flex a little bit and show his stuff. Uh, this is why they brought that man in. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with how they did that TV scene? No, enlighten. So I guess uh, it was they they brought Rick Baker in off of uh, American Werewolf in London, and they just thought, well, you're the man, you'll figure it out. And they threw him into the scene and they tried everything and they just couldn't figure out how to work. And with the, the material, they finally got to look just right was they did rear projection on uh, a big sheet of material they got from a dental dam company. Um, we're just coming into uh, the crack epidemic and the AIDS crisis and all of that and sexually transmitted diseases after the free wheel in 70s and 60s. And... Uh, Dental dams were starting to become popular, so they got a sheet of dental dam uh, material that was flexible enough but would still be reflective enough to do rear projection to make it look like a TV screen. And uh, they inflated it with air tubes uh, that would push air into the television that was sealed, um, and they put a rear uh, projector behind it, uh, and uh, yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, it's a it's a really, really cool scene, especially the way that they have the sort of close up on Debbie Harry's lips. And so like the way that they that ex- that just the lips extend from the television and then he kind of like kisses her by like, you know, slamming his head in it. And like, by the way, if anyone hasn't seen this, yes, the movie is as weird as it sounds. <laughs> All of this <laughs> is as absolutely insane as it sounds like it is. Um, no, I mean, he was definitely being he was being seduced by media you know he was literally being drawn in uh and and sexualized and being seduced by television and uh and and, in the worst possible way absolutely so from there he actually goes back to bianca and this is essentially where we learn that videodrome is a signal right and it's something of a living sentient entity and we under and we understand that it was originally created 
within the body of Brian Oblivion. Now, it turns out Brian Oblivion doesn't exist anymore. He actually died about a year ago, I believe 11 months prior to when the story takes place, uh, of cancer or the tumor or whatever it was, right? But he did essentially record thousands upon thousands of videos for really any sort of particular situation that might come up. So, you know, this is why when they ask him questions, you know, he responds in these sort of monologues that are halfway tangential. I mean, they always make sense relative to what's being discussed, but at the same time, they're never direct answers, right? And we learn that's because, oh, they've basically just got a crap ton of these old videos and they're showing them to perpetuate this this myth of this Brian Oblivion character. And he starts freaking out because, you know, he finds out that this is what killed Brian is, you know, watching television and he received these signals that then sort of merged with his own flesh to create something brand new. And yeah. Yeah. And so and and, and the the resultant entity was Videodrome and. And again, you know, this is where it's like, okay, well, it's a tumor, but it also has a signal and it's a channel and it's like there's there's a lot conceptually going on that might be yeah. a little difficult to so, resolve. So, yeah, I wanted to kind of clear this up real quick because I, I made a little diagram to make sure I was understanding. So Brian Oblivion created Videodrome or Videodrome was first as a show, but either way, it created a tumor um inside of Brian Oblivion that ended up taking his life, but the tumor after it was removed turned out to be a living thing. It was a sentient being all its own. Uh, this tumor was Videodrome, which then, uh, by way of media and television, was able to possess others in the same way. Now, with James Woods, James Woods was the next evolutionary stage of this. Is that correct? And becoming what they end up calling the new flesh? And yes. then the new flesh is setting out to end Videodrome uh, as a predecessor and take its place well, uh, to so continue the evolutionary phase. Is that correct? I, I, I believe it is and it isn't. So this is and, – and, and again, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this in just a little bit. But the interesting thing about it is that like – so it turns out that either Videodrome or the people who have power and control of Videodrome – um, actually are not as nefarious as we might have been led to believe. And so, but either way, the Videodrome entity has the ability to essentially control people's minds. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. But along with that control comes the creation of a new sentient entity within the body of that person. So it's basically like... Right planting a seed it's like think of it as like it's like the psychic equivalent of like the 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 queen alien right like planting that from from the movie alien planting that seed in someone's stomach that's going to manifest and sort of hatch and be born at a certain time and that will be born of the previous uh entity right with shades of that entity but also something brand new that's a, a hybrid of 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 those two two creatures, and the queen alien had no ill intent. Uh, just misunderstood, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just programmed just to propagate the same way as any of us, right? Right. Yeah, that's all I was trying to do. Keep its keep its keep its babies around. Just ripping out some some hearts, you know, Ryan. I actually 
do have a clip that I'm going to play of Bianca giving Max some of those tapes and Brian Oblivion in turn explaining some of these more advanced concepts. Let's listen. The battle for the mind of North America will be fought in the video arena. The video drone. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the television screen is part of the physical structure of the brain. Therefore, whatever appears on the television screen emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. Therefore, television is reality. And reality is less than television. Max, I'm so glad you came to me. I've been through it all myself, you see. Your reality is already half video hallucination. If you're not careful, it will become total hallucination. You'll have to learn to live in a very strange new world. I had a brain tumor. And I had visions. I believe the visions caused the tumor and not the reverse. Feel the visions coalesce and become flesh. Uncontrollable flesh. But when they removed the tumor, it was called Videodrome. Now, Ryan, the other sort of development in terms of, you know, why Cronenberg gets the reputation that he does as a sort of horror filmmaker and a body filmmaker is uh, the development of this rash on Mr. Woods' stomach. And uh, that is going to evolve into what can most accurately be described as a large vagina on his stomach. Yeah, and, uh, it's a big open, uh, you know, uh, cavern of which he just shoves shit in. Well, but even, even the design, it literally, I, I believe it's supposed to be a vagina. I believe that was the intent. Like, it's, it's designed oh, okay. exactly like one. This guy's got yeah, the outer I mean, lips, and the inner lips and everything. It, is, it looks exactly like it. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was like a fanny pack meets a vagina. He stores stuff in there, um, you know, guns, coupons uh, for the local grocery store. Well, and, and <laughs> well, no, I, oh, dude, honestly, I don't even have this in my notes. I literally just thought of this right now, though. But I that could make perfect sense because within James Woods is that tumor that video that the video drone signal is creating. So within his stomach. New life is new flesh is literally being born. And so perhaps ah. the reason that looks like a vagina is that it will ultimately birth this new flesh or it's at least okay. a metaphor for that. Interesting. I'll ah. go with that. Yeah. Awesome. I've, I've argued more with less before. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, uh, and that's what, again, um, going back to what you said at the start, I was expecting a different experience from this film than I got. And uh, there were layers to this movie that you could really dissect and get into. Um, it also inspired other films, too, like Blade Runner or uh, even Akira. I don't know if you ever saw Akira. Dude, I saw TV both. The, uh, and it's funny that you bring those up because in very much the same manner, both of those really are neo-noir films just set in a yeah, sci-fi right. aesthetic as opposed to a horror aesthetic. Absolutely. Yeah. But this was first. And so one could definitely link Cronenberg to these other films, you know, that, that are like it. Definitely. Definitely. So we're getting here close to the third act of the film. This is where uh, Max, you know, after he's gone and he's sort of 
put his hand in that large opening, you know, it gets stuck, but he, you know, he's able to pull it out and everything's okay. And then of course, you know, right before the scene cuts away, we see him in just his normal untarnished body. So continuing to understand that these are these sort of video hallucinations that he's having, though they kind of seem to be crossing over into a little bit more realist uh, territory, but he does get this call and they end up picking him up in a limo. He's picked up and he has this sort of video conference call with a, uh, the president, uh, who's kind of got like a sales mini executive kind of kind of vibe, uh, his name is Barry, and he basically tells Max, like, yeah, we're working on something with this Videodrome thing. You weren't supposed to get this signal yet. Like, we haven't we haven't 100% figured it out. It's not ready for public consumption, right? Like, like we're, we still got this thing cooking in the oven. You, you, were, you were never supposed to be exposed to this. Why don't you come down to the company? Let's you and I have a conversation about this. And so, you know, he ends up and I think the I think it's really so this this will kind of dovetail. The one thing I will say that 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 held this film back, in my opinion, was ultimately James Woods. Now, I actually do enjoy James Woods as a comedic actor, at least, uh, or, you know, when he's playing his sort of smart ass, fast talking guy. Right. Or or when he's just supposed to be like the out and out asshole, right? Like the Judge Reinhold is just asshole character, right? Like he 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 does stuff well. I I I didn't think he was great in this movie. Uh I would say Mr. Woods was kind of wooden in his acting. <laughs> uh certainly when you put him up against like a Debbie Harry or something like that, you know. And even this this even this corporate exec Barry, you know, they they were both very charming. And I don't know if you know this was just, you know, this was a, uh, you know, cocaine 83 and, and you know, Woods just had the the vacant stare the whole time, but I I didn't find him I I wished that he would have been a little bit more engaging. Did you have a problem with his performance at all or you thought it was fine? No, only because of what he what, what his surroundings were were so bonkers and everything that uh I think that having Woods play it straight like he did um and, and not so over the top, I think lent well to letting the rest of the film do some of the acting and some of the talking for the, for the movie and kind of carrying uh, some of the scenes uh, because the movie wasn't about James Woods. The movie was about Videodrome. The movie was about the evolution of humanity. Um, I would compare this in a similar way to 2001, a space odyssey where that film um, has a lot of similar themes uh, evolution based on, uh, you know, outside forces interacting with humanity and how that's brought us uh, through different stages of life, um, through uh, unexplained alien uh, forces or whatnot. This used television, uh, but in the same vein as 2001, I know you know you have to force yourself to look past sometimes the silly ape costumes or uh, the acting of uh, maybe some of the astronauts or or something like that uh, to get down to you know, the themes of the film and let the movie kind of wash over you in total, not trying to isolate performances. And I thought James Woods was just a vehicle to get us through this thing, not necessarily uh, someone that I'm watching like uh, like a Bogart in an old noir film where I'm like engaged by Bogart and how he interacts with Peter Lorre or Bacall or whatever. Uh, this was kind of a different experience to me. Uh, and I was able to let James Woods go. I can't really think of think of a... James Woods performance that was memorable to me. Can you? Nah, not really. Not off the bat. Not in anything that I've really seen somewhat recently. Uh, yeah. Like the only two movies I've seen that that I could like that are really memorable to me is The Hard Way. That's the one was, I was going to say. 
Yeah, but, that's but like even one that of those I haven't box seen cover in like thirty all talk years, about. dude. Like I, I don't even know if it would still hold up to this day, which is why I didn't throw. <laughs> yeah, it Yeah, just there. Family Guy. <laughs> that's really <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, be scandy. Ooh, be scandy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think the la- honestly, I think the last thing I remember seeing his face in, aside from uh, a Breitbart article, was uh, this, one of the scary movies. He had like a cameo as a preacher, which you okay, know, not exactly the height of anyone's career, or at least it shouldn't be. But either way, I don't know. I and <laughs> uh, you know, with this budget and the, and at the time and place it was filmed in, I just don't know who else I would have slapped in there anyway. Yeah, um, no, I mean, because here's the thing. You start putting a, a big name actor in there um, that, you know, then you start to take. I, I don't know if it would have added to it or taken away. You know, are you bringing a, a are you going to bring a better performance or a more dynamic performance? Or is that going to distract from some of the other themes that are going on? Or were you able to ingest some of those themes uh, in this film this time around? Because uh, James Woods was just you and McGregor. <laughs> he you know went I mean? the hell out of that performance he kind of did yeah and i don't mean that in necessarily a bad way but fair enough dude fair enough I, I'll, I'll buy it for sure you got you got you got my 12 bucks so when he when he and the funny thing is when he arrives there so you know he's kind of still continuing max that is to uh, hallucinate and kind of freak out a little bit he he very soon sort of finds himself in Videodrome, right? Like, there's that whole scene where Nikki's on TV and he, like, is with the whip and he starts, like, whipping the TV and then he just, you know, he wakes up and then all of a sudden that's when uh, pri- the, the, the Herald guy, the pirate, Frequency Pirate, shows up and actually reveals himself to be something of a cohort with this Barry character. And it's yeah. really interesting because they, they sort of go on to explain that they want to take over Channel 83. They have control of Videodrome. They want to take over James Woods's Max's Civic Television, Channel 83, and show Videodrome and blast the signal to his audience because his- Yeah, I mean, th- this is kind of where they, they announced that you didn't find us, we found you, and we've been pulling the strings all along because we need an outlet to put this thing out there so we can, uh, we had to perfect it. Now it's ready for the general public and we're going to put it out there like Soylent Green. I do have a clip of that that I'm going to go ahead and play. We'll come back and touch on this real quick. Why? To get you involved. To expose you to the Videodrome signal. It didn't affect you because you never watched it. You knew it was there. You didn't have to see it. It really does work on just about anybody. Anybody who watches it, Max. But why would anybody watch it? Why would anybody watch a scum show like Videodrome? Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. Sure. What about the other reasons? Why deny you get your kicks out of watching torture and murder? You murdered Brian Oblivion, didn't you, you freak? Did you enjoy that? North America's getting soft, Patron. And the rest of the world is getting tough. Very, very tough. We're entering savage new times. And we're going to have to be pure 
and direct and strong if we're going to survive them. Now you and this uh, cesspool, you call a television station, and uh, your people who wallow around in it and uh, your viewers who watch you do it, they're rotting us away from the inside. We intend to stop that rot. So, Jason, one thing that uh, we didn't really cover is that, uh, or if, if you did and I was zoning out, I apologize. Um, Videodrome got me. I uh, <laughs> We didn't really talk about the fact that Deborah Harry has left for Pittsburgh on assignment. Um, so all these times we're seeing her in the television and all this, she's gone out of James Wood's life at this point and only appearing to him through hallucinations. Yes. Um, and then it's around this time as well that we find out that uh, she was actually killed long before he met her and mm-hmm. uh, before she went to Pittsburgh. And she, he's been hallucinating her this whole time based on Videodrome. Uh, and Videodrome killed her, thereby bringing true uh, the fact that Video, oh, in fact, did kill the radio oh, star. Oh, ah! God. <laughs> Halfway through, I knew where you were yes! going. I was like, no. Yes! Oh, Jason, uh, thank you. You're, you're a gem. Thank you, thank you're you a everybody. gem, sir. Thank you for bringing us that moment. <laughs> Everybody listening, you're welcome or we're sorry, depending on where you fall on that one. <laughs> I just love when she was going to Pittsburgh and uh, and, and he's like, Pittsburgh, that's where Videodrome is. And she's like, I know. And then he spends like five minutes trying to explain to her, baby, please don't do murder porn. It's just <laughs> not going to work out. And she's like, oh, I'm not going to. Stone Cold. He's like, no, but really, don't do murder porn. <laughs> yeah, no, he gets serious. <laughs> he's like, I'm telling you, girl. That's like red flag number one. <laughs> don't have that conversation. Starts like shaking her and everything. Like, don't do it. It's bad. Yeah, murder <laughs> porn is bad. So, I don't know. Well, Lesson and- learned. Absolutely. And yeah, so that's that's an obviously an interesting little twist. You know, she was just used as the carrot to try to bring him in all along because they want his network. Here's what I find most interesting, Ryan. So when when you've got a twist like this, it's 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 always pretty cool, right? Like it lands, it's effective. You're like, ooh, this is what makes this one really interesting. And I want your take on this, which is that I believe the implication is that this Barry guy, the, the 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 exec that's developing Videodrome, as well as Harold, who's this frequency pirate that we've brought up, are essentially good guys. They are do-gooders because they end up they end up showing that they are disgusted by Max. They think Max is gross. They basically just Harold's been playing him all along like he's this skeezy pirate guy just to get in close with him because once it's revealed, they talk about how they are going to, quote, eliminate the cesspool of humanity. So the entire idea is that they know that, you know, for ease of classification, horrible people watch Channel 83 Civic Television. And they are going to be attracted to this Videodrome programming. So they have devised some sort of grand plan wherein they are going to attract these, you know, lesser people within society with a sort of depravity mindset and get, lure them in through Videodrome, but without knowing the, the, the totality of their plan, it sounds like the idea is that they're in essence going to reprogram them to actually be better people 
did 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 you find that same thing, or or did you interpret that differently? Yeah, this got a little blurry to me because they're giving you these tidbits in between hallucinations and other plot devices, uh, including revealing things about James Woods' characters past and and catching us up on that, like we just talked about. So, uh, I I was trying to wrap my head around this too, like so. They send James Woods or Videodrome sends James Woods to he's now becoming the new flesh and mm-hmm. superseding in a body mutation sort of way uh, with a uh, mutated hand where a gun has now become a part of his hand uh, when he needs it. And, and he's got, you know, some different weird shit happening that, to your point earlier, is transcending the hallucinations and now becoming, uh, you know, coming into re- reality. Um, so. I was a little confused about that. So are they using Videodrome to take over James Woods station and hijack that to purify humanity by a means of that's see, that's how I took it was Videodrome was coming on the channel. They were, they, they had uh, somewhat good intent in that basically whoever watches this is a garbage person. And so they're going to get this tumor and we're going to be able to weed out the riffraff of humanity, thereby only leaving the good people behind yeah. uh, that wouldn't watch Videodrome. But the problem was that uh, Videodrome kind of became um, anthropomorphic, if you will, or took on a life of its own and started running the show. And that's when it became the new flesh and outgrew these folks that were trying to put Videodrome on the air to weed out humanity. Uh, and that's why the new flesh then went back to eliminate its the threat to its own livelihood uh, by way of... Uh, these characters um, when James Woods goes and pulls the gun out of his belly uh, with his club hand uh, at the conference and shoots yeah. him on the stage and mm-hmm. um, all of that. So uh, that's kind of what I took from it was just Videodrome became conscious and started to take these people out in the same way that maybe, uh, you know, they created uh, Skynet in Terminator and then Skynet then became, uh, you know, crazy and started wiping out humanity in a way they didn't intend kind of a similar thing like you know the tail wags the dog what are your yeah. th- thoughts on that yeah no i think that's I, I think that's very possible and yeah and, and and you also brought up too i do want to just acknowledge like the the scene where the the gun extends those cables that fuse themselves into like his hand and arm like again mm-hmm. right up there with the tv thing uh with the tv scene like just very very cool rick baker getting to do some cool rick baker shit I love that this is at a time before advanced CGI, so all of this stuff is done practical, and it still just oh, yeah. holds up, you know, 30, four, literally 40 years later. It's awesome. Loved it. It's still yeah. fantastic, dude. Um, so It's the same joy I get from watching, like, the early Nightmare on Elm Street movies that were all done in a similar fashion as well. Yeah, they exactly. Or going to the space bar at Star Wars, you know, for the first, for the original trilogy when everyone was just a giant Muppet or in a giant costume or with some cool makeup or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah practical so. effects are, are awesome, but practical sci-fi and horror uh, specifically are awesome to me. Uh, in this age where practical effects had really peaked uh, because obviously you get, you know, early Ed Wood stuff, you know, uh, plan nine from outer space, all that, you know, that that's going to be super cheesy little saucer on a string sort of thing, or like the big costumes um, in the, in the forties and fifties, like matinee kind of movies. But by this time in the early eighties, we've like peaked star Wars and George Lucas to, to your point, you know, did a lot to advance that um, how matte paintings work, 
uh, to key out certain parts of the frame that you could then blue screen in later. How much of that was painted uh, on Star Wars? You know, they, they revolutionized the industry. So in the 80s, uh, and I think we've talked about this on the, in a past episode, the 80s indie films, you know, the, 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 there was a huge resurgence of studio movies, but the 80s had this great uh, little niche of sci-fi and horror movies that kind of were the indie films of that day. And it was a lot of just people that were into it, young kids that how do we make this TV do this thing or how do we transform this guy into this werewolf or, you know, zombie makeup or blood or any number of things. Um, you know, Freddie uh, coming out of the the wall or the ceiling, you know, with his claws and all of that. I don't know. There's so many yeah. iconic scenes that I could think of that off the top of my head that uh, use a lot of the same, you know, rubber and latex and foam and fake blood and all that fun stuff. Uh, it's really cool to see. And it's it's a shame that a lot of it went away. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And at this point, the film is kind of wrapping up and, you know, uh, Barry's basically feeding suggestions to Max as he's sort of going through everything. And so first thing he does is he convinces him to walk into his office and kill his partners and shoot the executives. Um, And I think that, you know, again, this is all just sort of part of their plan to overtake this channel 83. By the way, one thing I thought was super funny, Ryan, I don't know if you caught this. There's this brief moment where, James Woods is trying to escape from the building after he shoots his business partner and, and he, he runs through this little office and just in the background, very prominently displayed is a Canada drive vending machine. And I was like, wait, did, did they get, did they get product placement from ginger ale for fucking video drone? Are you serious? That's the only product placement I noticed. I just thought it was hilarious that like, Canada Dry of all things is is what decided to get in bed with David Cronenberg. They're like, well, we're both Canadian, <laughs> so why not? Literally, yeah, the know. only I, uh, the only connecting tissue in that relationship is. The I Canada. can't think of any Canadian exports from back then. That Canada Dry <laughs> would have been it. So, yeah, he should have at least been sponsored by like I don't know, like Canadian maple syrup for like his like gore effects, right? <laughs> <laughs> Or, uh, yeah, that would have so, been cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But um, and so yeah, you know, he's uh, like I said, Max is kind of on this mission. We're winding down. He he breaks back into the mission, uh, finds out that Nick Nikki is actually dead and has been the whole time. Like we mentioned a little bit ago, they used her to lure him into Videodrome. Um, that's where we get that moment where the gun also extends from the TV, kind of like the lips did previously, and it shoots Max, but you know nothing happens to him, and then. Uh, from there too, there's also the, he, he goes back to Harold after that. And Harold has this like very fleshy version of the T of, of, of a cassette. And I believe it's probably some new flesh from, from someone else maybe. And he, he, he goes to put it inside Max's, you know, stomach vag opening thing. And when he does <laughs> like, uh, uh, all of a sudden Max kind of ha- takes control, right? And he actually strips Harold's hand to the bone. So, you know, and, and then and, and Harold pulls his thing out. And he's like, oh, oh, we see like the you know, just just the bone there where the where the hand should be. And then from there, Max more or less uses his mind to make Harold explode. And I believe the implication is at this point that now kind of it's, it's sort of his like, oh, you've achieved enlightenment moment. Right. Like like it's Neo coming into his powers at the end of the matrix, right? It's like, 
Uh, or, you know, even the end of the uh, uh, 300 Cups of Coffee episode of Futurama, right? Like, you've achieved your, like, like where Fry all of a sudden can <laughs> run super fast. That's so funny, to... too, because, like, the 80s guy is so James Woods to me. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally, man, right? So I think it's sort of the implication that's, like, oh, like, Max has, you know, finally achieved either the new flesh is ready to be birthed because he's had the signal enough, or, you know, he's sort of achieved some sort of enlightenment, right? But I think the idea is that he's now in control of his hallucinations, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, he's become the new flesh, and he's going to now execute the next stage of, you know, the, the evolutionary process that's going on here. Uh, yeah. Everyone that thought they were in control are not in control. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where we're kind of left. There's also a really graphic death scene with Barry, which, like... I don't I don't even understand the physics behind it. I think he like shoots him a couple times and Barry essentially splits in half and he's like there's just like foam and viscera and like white organs just like pulsing and thrashing all over the place. It's like I don't think that happens when you shoot people, but I suppose maybe Well, no, but that's how I'll have to that all has to do right? with uh to me that all had to do with Videodrome uh being a sentient tumor more or less or a being you know i mean you think uh, he's everything got like that a being on, growing inside of him and that's kind of is like he like interrupted the birth process or something like that correct oh, okay. yeah i, I think that, that that because brian oblivion when we go back to the beginning had that tumor that he called videodrome that tumor was inside him uh, as a living being that overtook him and um you know ended up killing him uh, in the end but uh yeah i kind of took it uh as that's what was happening here was the living sentient thing that was inside him was at this stage had evolved so much that it was just using his body as a shell more or less, or a, you know, a means to an end. And so when he shot him with that gun, um, which may or may not have even been a real physical gun or some kind of, you know, a uh, product of Videodrome because he did get it from the television, right? And and it was inside him. It was a part of hallucination and then it was a part of his hand. So who the fuck knows, man? This is where <laughs> it gets real blurry. You just got to go more on theme than in reality. But that, yeah, that's how I took it was that was Videodrome, not, I mean, and it was just using that as like a exoskeleton more or less or a, you know, a costume that when shot, we see it split apart and all the guts kind of, come out of every crack and nook and cranny it splits them open i think one thing is that you know it very well could be that all of this relates to a sort of theory much like you said of just propagation of species that's really all this comes down to so basically you know videodrome implants a signal to create a tumor inside a person of which the tumor and the signal and the flesh all meld into a unique sentient entity which is then born from that previous entity now you've got essentially this flesh cassette but this flesh cassette is also a living entity right so when you look at the fact that james woods has this you know very sort of vaginal like opening on his stomach and at the end harold and barry basically tried to take this flesh cassette that is now a new entity and put it inside of this vaginal opening, which is James Woods, like he, he receives that. It's almost like impregnation at that point, 
Like the new sure. entity is is penetrating and entering this new body, and and that's going to itself create a new entity within the womb of James Woods, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yep. So they're they're yeah. I think that 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 very well could be what that is. Yep. Again, transcendence and evolution. It's all just different stages of the process, and as one outgrows the other, uh, you know the 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 one the the previous version. It exists only to support the next stage and the next stage exists only to eliminate the previous stage so that it can support the next stage and be eliminated and so on. And that's life on earth, baby. (laughs) (laughs) That's how this thing works, man. Yeah. So, and then we do get that final shot just, you know, where to wrap it up where he, he does break into the Harbor. Uh, He goes into the sort of little shack. There's a TV there. Nikki's on the TV and basically says that he needs to, to put a gun to himself and pull the trigger to allow the old flesh to become the new flesh. And, you know, he basically watches himself take that action on television, then turns around and does it himself and, uh, you know, utters the words that, you know, let's be honest, we've all said a thousand times before, long live the new flesh. And bam, you know, gun to the head, game <laughs> over and movie over. And yeah, man. So, I mean, this was a, this was a, this was a really interesting film to break down, man. Definitely. Yeah, loved it. Yeah, so uh, why don't you go ahead and give us your, I'll let you take them first, man. Three adjectives. Go for it. Uh, So my three are disturbing, which we talked plenty about why that would be. Uh, current, again, uh, this is apl- as applicable, if not more so today than it was then. And uh, one of those good old hyphenated ones. This was a descent into madness. Uh, <laughs> there were times when I was watching this movie where i had to question is this me now is this me on the podcast is jason videodroming me <laughs> is our podcast a new videodrome because fuck me man i'm all in on it and uh <laughs> it's just taking up more and more of my time and i'm just like video drummed out so yeah uh, if i grow a belly vagina uh i'm coming after you buddy <laughs> sorry Take excellent you man Excellent, excellent. Yeah, uh, so my three, first one I've got is engrossing, you know, and that's not to say it's gross, it's engrossing. I nece- I did not necessarily, a lot of times when I go into movies with this type of reputation, like, I'm kind of just there for, like, the creature effects and the gore and the, you know, basically just, like, the crazy makeup effects and atmosphere, right? And yeah, yeah. I did not expect myself to get nearly as engrossed in figuring out, first of all, I didn't know there were going to be as many puzzle pieces as there were. And from there, I didn't expect to be as invested in trying to figure out what they were. So the other thing is it's a distinctive piece. You know, it's one of those very sort of, you know, I've used the word before, like idiosyncratic. Like this is a film that only could have come from David Cronenberg, right? Like nobody, nobody else can make this movie in exactly this way because it's just a very singularly distinctive work. And beyond that, it's also banana pants crazy. It's just nuts, dude. This whole film is just batshit crazy. It's 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 a lot of crazy visual metaphor. It's a lot of insane visuals and sound effects. But the insane thing is that it works. It it almost works in spite of itself. You know, like it's like so. This could have gone so wrong. This could have been so easily been just like a shitty, horrible Cinemax film, right? Like from just a bad oh, filmmaker. Definitely. It had it could have gone so south, and I think that even makes it that much more impressive of a feat. I think it actually makes me appreciate it more that they can take these 
very, very overwrought genre and genre sensibilities and, and turn it into something resembling art. It's crazy. No, I mean, that's been kind of a running theme through our last few episodes where this is a, yet another movie that should not work on paper. And yet here we are uh, talking about it. It's got a Criterion uh, collection edition into it and all of that. So Cronenberg uh, is an auteur in its most raw sense. Um, you know, we think of auteurs as the 70s filmmakers, 60s filmmakers, the end of the studio system, uh, you know, your Scorsese's, your De Palma's, your Spielberg's, and so on, your Coppola's. Uh, but Cronenberg's right in there. I'm sorry. He's, uh, he's an auteur to me. He's, you know, indie cinema. Uh, you know, he kind of operates outside the Hollywood regime and uh, does his own thing, and God bless him for it. Um, hot take, too. I don't know if you knew this. You know, you can watch Cronenberg's movies and say that these are drug-fueled, you know, fever dreams of sorts, or, you know, man, that guy must have, everyone was just doing a bunch of cocaine and turning the camera on, and then this happened. And uh, actually, Cronenberg is notoriously sober. He uh, uh, claims to have done uh, some drugs in the 60s when he was very young, but uh, other than that, his body doesn't take to it. He kind of runs a pure system. He rides his bike all the time. He's very active uh, out in nature. And he only drinks wine with meals. He doesn't even partake or imbibe in any alcohol. He's actually a very, very sober dude. So, um, you know, hey, maybe the uh, maybe all the liquor and, and drugs and stuff have done me some good over the years. Maybe it's kept me. Away. Maybe this is what sobriety <laughs> looks like. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's just I think it's just a touch of good old fashioned Canadian weirdness, man. That's all it is. They got yeah. some. Uh, they got some different cats up there. And and yeah, it's funny because uh, some of the, like I like in in some of the like the indie author community, for example, there's a lot of Canadian authors that do darker material. And yeah, dude, they're always just like the nicest people, you know. Or it's the way that like you know some death metal band, it's like a bunch of like liberal hippies that are you know, it's like you hear it and it's like bra bra bra, and then you like read the lyrics and it's like we have to protect Mother Earth, and you're like, huh, I wouldn't have thought that was the lyrics. <laughs> Crazy, right? Right. Um, so yeah, you know, oftentimes the the aesthetic doesn't exactly match what we stereotype as, you know, the character behind it, right? You know, we always think, oh, you know, if someone does dark horror shit, you know, they're, they're all going to be some, you know, Marilyn Manson, you know, goth sort of guy that, you know, practices devil worship and likes to cut themselves during sex, you know, and then here comes David like, hey guys, what's up? Oh, you see that cool TV thing I did? Oh, yeah. Eating granola and almonds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Going for a three-mile bike ride. You want to join? That's oh, okay. We'll do it yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> Don't forget your helmet, eh? <laughs> so, yeah, Safety dude. first. <laughs> Let's go ahead and formalize it, man. Give me, give me, give, give me your, uh, for you, grade rating. I got an A- minus on this one. Nice. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's held back from a lot of things. Like you said, uh, maybe... Some of the performances could have been a little better. I don't know, man. I mean, it's it's 80s, it's old school, but it's A-minus material. I'm going to put it right in there, you know, 91, 90%, something right in there. Nice, man. Yeah, I'm about the same. I got it at four and a half stars. Uh, I actually wouldn't oh, be su- wow, okay. Yeah, I actually wouldn't be surprised to see this kind of creep up into that, like, four and three-quarter rating. Maybe. I don't know if it would quite hit the five, but... um. But yeah, for me, this was just, it was, it was, again, you know, I was invested and it's a shorter film too, you know? So for, and I was, I was invested in every minute, you know, all, all 93 minutes or whatever it is right around there. And, uh, and I think that's part of it too. You know, it's like, Hey, you know, there's a, this is going to be an intense short ride, right? We're, we're throwing a lot at you. You know, we, you, you, most audiences probably can't take, you know, two and a half hours of this. So, you know, let's, let's give, let's hit them hot, heavy, 
you know, let's get to the point. Let's not waste people's time. You know, every every mm-hmm. scene advances the story or tells something about the character. I think this is, you know, one of those movies where there's, you know, no wasted shots or scenes or or or, or uh, moments or anything like that. So, yeah, solid four and a half stars, man. Awesome, dude. Yeah. So everybody listening, as you know, we don't really uh, pimp the socials too much uh, outside of the show. So but you can reach us on a few different avenues. We've got a very lovely Instagram. That's at Esoterica Cinema. Got some fun quotes on there, as well as some really interesting artwork. We also do like to interact with people on Twitter. That's probably where uh, where you're going to get the most uh, interaction from us. Uh, Again, at Esoterica Cinema on Twitter. And then, of course, for some of you uh, either older cats or people that just like to spend more than 280 characters communicating their thoughts, we're on the email, and we love to hear from you. So whether you like us, whether you hate us, whether you're enjoying a delicious muffin, perhaps it's lemon, perhaps it's chocolate, perhaps it's bran. Either way, we know that for all of the muffin lovers, as well as all the movie lovers, you're going to want to reach out and talk to us about these things. We're available on email, esotericacinema at gmail.com. Now, Ryan, we have not talked about this, but, uh, you know, this is, I believe... Let me see. 18th episode? Is that correct? Yeah. 18th episode. I think so. Yeah. So Checks out. I, I, I think we touched on it last last episode. Uh, we are actually coming uh, close to what we are going to call the end of season one. So we've decided that we're going to call season one after 20 episodes, which we believe is a very solid number. That's two more than your average streaming program, by the way. Who gets away with Fuck ten, Fuck maybe all. even eight episodes? <laughs> We've got twenty, and half of those are doubles. So we brought you thirty amazing film discussions in less than a calendar year. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed it. We enjoyed it as well. We're not going anywhere. We're gonna be around, but we are gonna retool a little bit more than likely uh, moving forward. Uh, starting season two, the every episode will be a half episode. Uh, and we are going to start working on bringing you guys some additional comedy content in the form of mini episodes. Gonna gonna lean into our sort of improv and comedy tastes that we like uh, a little bit more for you in some of the off episodes. Uh, we will still have the sketches for you, which we hope you're enjoying. We love making them for you, even though, Ryan, sometimes they're such a pain in the ass, dude. <laughs> when you just don't have that idea and you've got nothing or like... Even worse is when last night you have that brilliant idea and you wake up and you're like, what the hell? That was a horrible idea. Why did I even entertain that for a <laughs> All the time. All my <laughs> ideas are horrible ideas. Just some get recorded and some don't. That's uh, the deciding fact. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so this is actually going to be our last randomly selected half episode uh, because our next half episode is going to be episode 20. It's going to be the final of the season. We're going to take a few months off. A little bit of retooling, um, you know, start to uh, we're going to develop out a website for you guys. I uh, just have some additional options. Been even been even toying around with some video. You know, we'll never see. Maybe we'll get a little YouTube thing going. So uh, stay tuned for that. We have a lot of cool ideas. But I do want to let everyone know that instead of doing a random film for the final episode of the season, we've actually made a point to go ahead and select a newer film. That we that that we think is going to be a lot of fun, uh, and 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 if you have not seen the trailer, you're going to want to go check it out right now. This is a Nicolas Cage movie 
that Ryan, I think it's probably fair to best describe it as the the live action cinematic adaptation of the uh, classic jump scare video game Five Nights at Freddy's. Uh, for if you're familiar and and for everyone else out there, I am. Might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is basically Nick Cage showing up. I think a bunch of kids get trapped in like a, a Chuck E. Cheese sort, and uh, yeah, the uh, the uh, characters come to life, and it's up to him to save them. So that's gonna be called Willie's Wonderland. You can find a trailer for Willy's Wonderland right now on YouTube. Do go watch it. It seems like a lot of fun. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to do that on VOD for the very last film of season one of Esoterica Cinema. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, this is a selfish endeavor, you know, for, you know, all the European 1950s obscure cinema, you know, foreign films, reading subtitles. Now I just get to do a Nick Cage hack and slash movie. Um, <laughs> You know, with Mandy and some of his more recent additions uh, into cinema, I think he did a movie called Joe. Uh, like, I just, I've really been getting more and more and more in the, in the cage, man. Yeah. To me, he's getting better, not worse. And Same. this is crazy looking from the trailer. So I'm really <laughs> excited to get into this and dissect it for better or worse and just enjoy it for what it is. And if it sucks, it's our last episode of season one, everybody. Uh, so I hope you've enjoyed it. I uh, hope it's been more good than bad. Um, it's certainly gotten us through some COVID stuff here and, and, uh, the quarantine and all that. So it served its purpose, but just like the coronavirus, we're going to retool and come back for season two in 2021. <laughs> so <laughs> don't listen to him, everyone. Don't listen to him. Things will be fine. Just stick around. We got, we got this. Y'all. <laughs> Things will we got be fine. This. <laughs> oh, fine. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, again, just to, re- ju- just to reiterate guys, the film is called Willie's Wonderland. If you haven't heard of it. Uh, it's probably going to cost a little bit more because it's going to be VOD, so be prepared for that. Hopefully it's not a big deal. Hopefully you do enjoy that film. And then we still have our final full-length episode, episode 19, coming up in just two weeks. And that is going to be featuring the films, as a reminder, Buffalo 66, as well as Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Now, the one thing I will tell you guys, I've looked into it. Both of these films are available for free on Tubi, which I haven't watched anything on there, Ryan. I don't know if they have commercials or... If they have commercials, please just pay a couple bucks and watch them elsewhere. It's gonna it, it's gonna ruin the entire experience. Um, but there is there are there are two different cuts of Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Okay, and and they're pretty dramatic. I believe one is ninety five minutes and the other is one hundred and thirty two minutes. So I mean, you're talking about almost like forty minutes worth of screen time, right? And Jeez. yeah, so the Killing of a Chinese Bookie that's available on Tubi as well as Amazon is the the theatrical cut. But if you have HBO Max, HBO Max actually just introduced the 132-minute, which we'll call director's cut, of Killing of a Chinese Bookie. So that's the one that we're going to watch if you want to make sure that you watch the same film that we do. Because with 40 minutes cut, there's a very good chance we reference material or scenes that you haven't seen. Um, But again, it is included with your HBO Max subscription, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, along with Buffalo 66. Guys, it has been a lot of fun talking video drone with you today. We will see you on the next episode of Esoterica Cinema. For the transfer of information, idea, knowledge. Hello, listeners. It is me, your friendly neighborhood nihilist and uh, your favorite rapper's favorite rapper, Werner Herzog. I have come back once again to introduce to you what has actually been happening here. 
the revelation of the true nature of the Esoterica cinematic program. I have gone to great lengths to bring about what will soon be known as the new flesh, uh, which will make things much better for all humanity, or um, the lack thereof. From the inception of this program uh, in my film Aguirre throughout season one, my crew has worked tirelessly uh, behind the scenes to bring about the inevitable, the audiodrome. Perhaps even now you may have noticed a large uh, vaginal cavity in your belly that you've been using to keep things in, like, uh, I don't know, coupons, unlicensed firearms, your car keys, uh, other things uh, you don't want to lose. This is all a part of the larger plan to evolve past the limitations uh, that have been bestowed upon humanity. Even now, as I speak, by listening to this podcast, um, you've agreed to fertilize and give birth to the next phase of audio programming. In this new world, uh, we will evolve past the experience of cinema and to learn to further appreciate the greater truth, the American Muffin. From its sugary top uh, to its underrated, delicately wrapped bottom, uh, the muffin is the new truth and the only thing that matters now. I implore you to not eat the muffin with your old human mouth, uh, but instead insert the muffin into the vaginal cavity previously mentioned so that the audiodrome can have some too. As the meaningless host of this show, Jason has requested, uh, feel free to exercise your right of speech to let us know about the muffin experience and uh, how the uh, new evolved flesh is enjoying it, preferably on Twitter. With that, uh, I leave you um, like the hope of humanity has also left you this year, to continue to evolve into the new flesh under Esoterica Cinema's Audiodrome. Long live the new flesh, and uh, as they have told me with such enthusiasm in Peru, uh, adios. From the imagination of acclaimed author Ashton McCauley comes the next great American anti-hero, Nick Ventner in Whiteout. Nick is a bit of a lush, preferring whiskey to water and bar hopping to exercise. But when a mysterious benefactor hires Nick to find the lost gates of Shangri-La, Nick sobers up just enough to take on the case. Featuring non-stop action and a hilarious wit, Whiteout by Ashton McCauley is a -a laugh-a-minute thrill ride that will keep you turning the pages until the very end. Whiteout, available now in ebook, hardcover and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.